Good morning to you. Good to see you this morning. My name is Stephen Elliott. I'm the pastor of High School Ministries here at Grace, and uh, it is a great honor and privilege to, to be able to be here to open up God's Word together. Uh, pastor John, our senior pastor, is away with family this weekend and getting some much-deserved and needed rest. Well, Christmas season is upon us. There's probably like some that think are like really excited about that. Others, maybe that's a little daunting to think about. A uh, quick poll. I want to know uh, who has their Christmas, ups, Christmas lights up right now? Already has their Christmas. Wow, way more than, the, than in the first verse. Good job. Uh, who puts their Christmas lights up on December 23rd? <laughs> and then the next part of that is who leaves their Christmas lights up until July. <laughs> and those people in my neighborhood, it's like, oh, yay, it's summer, and now they're finally taking their lights down. Uh, okay, who is playing Christmas music right now? Okay, okay, very good. Uh, what about December 23rd? When is that? For some of you, that's your time to start playing Christmas music. I'm more in that. I know, don't, don't throw rocks at me. I, that's more my, I don't mind Christmas music, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> Who is listening to Christmas music in July? Raise your hands proudly. There you are. <laughs> ah, yes. You are weirdos. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, okay, finally, who has their Christmas shopping done already? Any of you? Wow, good job. You are the envy of everyone here. <laughs> and who's out December 24th frantically? Or who is taking advantage of Amazon's two-day free shipping on December 23rd, 3rd and ordering. There you are. Yep. <laughs> it's fine. It takes all kinds. <laughs> well, now that we're in the Christmas season, I want us to, I want us to take a fresh look at, at the Christmas message and beyond that, at the, beyond that, the, the message and the mission of Jesus and ultimately what he calls us to as well. Because I think in our culture, we love Christmas, right? I mean, this is like, for, for many of us, I mean, we, we build up to this throughout the year. I mean, this is really an exciting time. Um, there's a lot that goes into marketing this and promoting it, and it's just a, a sweet time of year for, for a lot of people. Um, but I think a lot of us and a lot of people in our culture get so, if they even choose to look at Jesus, look primarily and solely at, at the baby in the manger, and they love the idea that the Savior has come to redeem the world, and that the Savior has come to bring about salvation to everyone. But I think for a lot of folks, the message stops there. And I think we forget that, that in a sense, the manger sits in the shadow of the cross, so to speak. Uh, the, the, we cannot overlook the message of the cross when we, when we think about Christmas. We have to remember that, that Jesus' mission was not just to be born, but his mission and his goal and his purpose was to live a sinless life, model the ultimate Christian life, model that for all of us to follow, die on the cross to, to bear the full weight of God's wrath on himself so that we can enter into a relationship with him, and that ultimately that we can follow after him bearing our own cross, that we are to live the life that he lived, that we are to live with him in mind. We are to live with his purpose and his mission and his goal in mind, and, and that's, that's the ultimate goal. I think we often overlook that. We often mistake 
who Jesus really was and what his mission, what his purpose was. And that's not something that's unique to our culture alone. Jesus' very first followers dealt with the same thing, and Jesus has to take time and he has to correct that in them. And this story that we're going to read this morning, Mark lays out three stories, and just at a, a passing glance, really, you might miss the big picture of what Mark is trying to communicate in this text. Uh, But in a sense, with these three stories, he makes three dots, and he's wanting us to connect the dots. And so if you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark 8. We're going to start in Mark 8, 22. And keep your Bibles open, because we're going to be coming back to this text. Uh, If you've read this story before, it's one that can kind of, at times, be a little confusing, a little like, Wait, what? What's going on? Um, But again, when you look at the bigger picture, uh, when you connect it with the other stories, it makes a lot of sense. And it's really uh, pretty clever of Mark. Mark is actually a really really clever writer. I encourage you to to study his gospel uh, deeply because you'll see he he tends to do this where he draws stories and he connects stories and illustration and illustrates teachings with other stories. And that's what he does here. So the first story is Mark 8.22. And it says, they came to Bethsaida, talking about Jesus and his disciples. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eye, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Uh, Again, if you're you're like me, maybe the first time you've read the story, maybe the, you know, after many times reading the story, you kind of wonder, like, "Mm, what's going on here? This is kind of weird. What? It's kind of gross. Like, thanks, Jesus, for spitting and touching my eyes with your spit. But okay, you know, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. And by, ever, by whatever means he chooses to heal people, is, is, that's, that's his choice. But it's also odd when you think about it, when it seems odd that he would touch the man twice, that the first time he touched him, he, his eyes weren't fully restored, that he wasn't seeing everything clearly. He, we see in the sense that, that he sees the fir- after the first touch, but he doesn't see clearly. He, he sees, but he doesn't understand. He doesn't comprehend exactly what he's seen. And it takes a second touch for him to both see and to understand, to both see and comprehend exactly what it is he's seen. It seems odd, but when you look at it in light of the next two stories, things start to make sense. Things start to come into light. So the second story is in the next verse, in in verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Or, excuse me, who do people say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Uh, Peter gives the right answer. Uh, Any of you teachers or parents in the room probably are very familiar with times when when a, a child or a student gives you the answer you want to hear, they give you the right answer, but you know that they don't really get exactly what they're saying. They're, you know, I remember that when I was in school. I, would, I could memorize the right answers, especially in stuff like math and science and like 
chemistry? I, okay, I don't understand what it is. I know, I know this is the right answer, but I don't know what it means. Um, you are probably familiar with those things. And Peter, in a sense, does that here. He gives the right answer. And he gives the answer with his understanding, but his understanding is, is not right. He, does, he sees, but he doesn't fully understand. And that's why Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him, because Jesus knew that Peter and the other disciples didn't fully understand who the Messiah was. You see, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that the Old Testament prophesied would come and bring about salvation to the nation of Israel and ultimately to all people, the one that would come and make things right. But as Peter understood it, and as many Jews in this day understood it, the Savior would be a, a political and a social Savior. They would be one, the one that would make everything right politically. They would restore the kingdom of Israel to the right place, how it kind of was when David was the king, uh, that they would make everything right politically and socially. And so their thought of Jesus is that he would come in, he would he would kick out the Romans. The Romans would be gone. Israel would be sovereign again. They wouldn't be under the tyrannical rule of some other foreign nation, that they would be in charge and that he would be a real legitimate earthly king. And he would make everything right politically and socially and would bring about uh, justice. Um, many, many Old Testament texts point to this or allude to this, but again, it's a misunderstanding on, G on Peter's part that um, where this, where the confusion came in. Texts like Isaiah 35, 4 through 10, where it says, Isaiah says, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Do not fear, something Jesus said often. For your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and he will unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Those are all things that Jesus, those are all miracles that Jesus had performed. And so when Peter saw these things happening, there was no doubt in his mind that texts like this were running through his mind where he's like, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is fulfilling, he is actively fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Again, Peter gives the right answer. He acknowledges who Jesus is, but the next story shows that he misses who the Messiah really is and the Messiah's true mission and the way he goes about bringing salvation and ultimately what he calls his followers to do and the life he calls his followers to live. And it's so important that we not miss this because I think so often we miss what Jesus, what Jesus is calling his followers to be and to do. Verse 31 and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, Jesus isn't doing it like how he used to where he was kind of speaking, kind of alluding to things and kind of speaking vaguely. It says he speaks clearly. And Peter did not misunderstand what Jesus was saying and what Jesus is teaching. And it's really, really important that we realize that what Jesus does next, um, and we not miss what Jesus does next. But turning and seeing his disciples, 
He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Imagine Peter with this mindset of, of, of who Jesus is and what he is doing and the, the kingdom that he's going to bring about and the way he's going to restore everything. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is saying this, that he's, he's not going into Jerusalem to restore everything. Instead, he's going in and he's going to be rejected and ultimately he's going to be killed and he's going to be crucified. That must have been shocking to Peter. And so Peter, fully aware of what Jesus is saying, pulls him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And listen to this in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, but whoever Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So what's going on here? What does this mean? What's happening is just like the blind man, Peter needs a second touch. Peter needs to be touched again. Peter needs to be healed fully to see clearly. And Jesus' rebuke of Peter is his second touch. Too often, I think we misunderstand the mission and the call of Jesus. And I think we, like Peter and like this man, need a second touch. We need to see clearly what it is Jesus demands of us. What is it, what exactly, what it is Jesus came to do? And what does it mean to truly be his followers? And Jesus' command, what Jesus teaches is that they must make him Make following him, serving him, obeying him, becoming like him the most important, central part of their life. It must be every part of their life. Your main point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. The, the main point, what I think Jesus is really trying to communicate to us, is that we must see and understand. We must see and understand that Jesus demands we follow him to the cross. We must see and understand that Jesus demands— that we follow him to the cross. In Jesus' day, a, a man carrying a cross was a condemned man, was a dead man walking. When Jesus' disciples saw people walking through town, it's not like they would just see like how we think of it. You know, we see people carrying and wearing crosses all the time around their neck. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's socially, it's a, it's a cool thing. Uh, you know, tattoos, is, we don't think anything of it. But in Jesus' day, that did not happen. The only crosses were carried by convicted men who were going to be executed. And the cross was something that was a, a sign of great shame. And they, the Romans would make them march it through town where people could see, and they would make it drag, they would make the convicted person drag their own cross to a place where they were going to be nailed to that cross and killed. And when people saw someone carrying a cross, they knew that that person was a dead man walking. They knew that that person wasn't coming back next week. It's not like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll see them later. They knew that when that person walked past them, 
and they were on their final steps to death. They knew that they were, that they were not coming back. And Jesus says that his disciples must pick up their own crosses and follow him. And what Jesus is saying is that you, if you are going to be my disciple, you have to be a changed person. You cannot be the same. Your old self is dead. You are, you are dead to yourself. You are now my follower. You are following me to the cross. Often we look at the cross and we look at the crucifixion and we think, great, this is sweet. Jesus took all the pain and all the suffering on my part. He died so that I can be forgiven and now I can live my life however I want because I'm free and I'm forgiven and, and good. Sweet. He took care of it, so, you know, no, no obligations on my part. But Jesus says, no, if you are going to be my follower, you have to pick up your own cross and follow me. You have to become like me. Your mission, my mission has to be your mission. One quick note before I go to the next fill-ins is that I want to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus called Peter Satan. It's the only time, he, Peter's the only person that Jesus ever actually called someone Satan. That is a strong, that's not like, oh, you are just being a dork. You know, oh, you guy, you're just being, you know, kind of a knucklehead right now. No, no, no. These are strong words from Jesus. What he is saying is that Peter unintentionally, but had fallen into the trap of adopting the mission and the purpose of the enemy. He was no longer walking in the mission and the purpose of Jesus. He is walking opposed to Jesus. He is doing, by, by opposing Jesus, he is literally doing the will of the enemy. That's a scary thing. If Peter, the one who literally sat with Jesus and listened to Jesus and saw Jesus face to face, could be adopting the mission and the purpose of the enemy, we can do the same thing. And that should terrify us. That should give us pause. How do we avoid that? Truly listen to what Jesus is teaching. Listen to what God's word says. When God speaks something, when he speaks truth, we need to not just assume that we know what it means. We have to stop and we have to listen and think about it. So we followers must pick up our cross and follow him. What does that look like? What does it mean to pick up our cross? What does it look like practically in your life to pick up your cross and be a follower of Jesus? I'm going to give you a few tips, a few things that I think really come out of this text. Number one, if you're taking notes, living with one mission and purpose in mind. Living with one mission and purpose in mind. One. One mission and purpose in mind. When you boil it down, when you, why do you get out of bed every morning? What are you working towards? What are you living towards? What is your goal? What is your greatest desire? When you simplify everything, why do you get out of bed in the morning? What are you working and living towards? If you claim to be a follower of Jesus and serving him and advancing his kingdom is not your life's mission and your greatest desire and your purpose, then you are actively standing opposed to him. If your life's mission and purpose and goal and greatest desire, when you summarize everything, when you boil it all down, is not ultimately to glorify God and to advance his kingdom and to make his name great, then you are actively standing opposed to him. You are not picking up your cross and following him. Now, I'm not saying that you all have to go out and quit your jobs and put on an itchy 
robe and pick up scrolls and move away to some cold, you know, stone monastery somewhere out in the country and just sit and read that and, and chant all day long. That's, that's weird. Don't do that. But what is your ultimate purpose and goal within your job, within your mission field, where God has called you and placed you within your family? What is your ultimate mission and purpose? Is it to advance God's kingdom? Is it to make his name great? Is it his mission? Have you adopted his mission and his purpose, or are you out doing your own thing? How do we determine that? Let me give you a, a, a tip. But let me give you a way of figuring out. What consumes your money? What consumes your time and your energy and your thought life and your focus? What consumes all of those things? Whatever that thing is that consumes all of that, that is what you are living towards. And if that's not the Lord and his mission and his purpose, you are staying opposed to him. Number two, releasing your right to put yourself first. Releasing your right to put yourself first. Uh, I don't know how many, how many of you, just quick show of hands, how many of you went shopping on Black Friday? Bum, bum, bum. Oh man, wow, good man. Brave the crowds. I think the only reason I would want to go out is just to see like the fist fights that break out and see people like, I mean, it's like a real life reality TV show right in front of me. That's just, I would just sit back with like popcorn and just watch the action unfold. I do not need to tell you, especially you who went shopping on Black Friday, that we live in a culture that is very self-serving is very self-centered, and that is not in any way unique to our culture. Uh, from the time the very first sin came, man was instantly trying to pass the buck onto someone else, was instantly trying to serve himself, was trying to put his own needs ahead of someone else's. But that is not the mission and the purpose of Jesus. That is not the cross he calls us to carry. Picking up your cross means that you release your right to put yourself first. In our culture, we have this concept of our stuff, our lives, our time. If we choose, choose to donate our stuff, our time, our money, our things, we have the right to do that. But if not, ho, 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 no, it's ours. I was in Mexico a couple weeks ago with Pastor Don. Uh, we, we go down in the fall. Uh, he goes down because he serves on the board for Mount of Olives Children's Village, uh, a, a ministry and a mission that, that our church supports, and many of you have been down there or you've heard about it from either from our mission in, uh, high school mission in Mexico or the family trip that goes in the summer or the men's work trips that go down there. It's a great, um, it, it's an amazing ministry and orphanage that we've we partnered with for many, many years. Um, and I go down with Don, like I said, because he serves on the board and they have a board meeting, and I go down with him to connect with the, the pastors and the churches that we serve with and uh, just do some recon work. Um, but the week we were down there was the same week as the Baja 1000. It's like this off-road race where these guys get these monster off-road trucks and they drive them like crazy all, and they go way down the peninsula, uh, the Baja Peninsula, and back up, and it's, it's awesome. Um, and this year, the track actually went through the riverbed right outside of the, outside of the town of Urapan, where we, where we serve at, and I mean, you could see it from the, from the orphanage, and so, um, so we, you can't do this stuff in America, by the way. Um, so we, we load up all the kids from the orphanage, and we went down to the track, and there's no, like, markers anywhere on the track. I mean, we like had to set up our own markers and it was like from me to the front row and these trucks are just 
blazing past, and this cloud of dust would envelop us, and it was awesome. The kids from the orphanage were loving this. And like I said, we, we loaded them up in trucks and hauled them down to the riverbed, and they're like, I mean, you gotta think, these, these kids are orphans. Many of them, their families either can't take care of them or have abandoned them or their parents have died. I mean, they really have nothing, and this orphanage is everything to them. And, um, and so to see something like this for them was just the best. I mean, the kids' faces as these trucks were like racing by, they were like, ah, yeah. And we had like, the only barriers we had with these was this plastic caution tape. And we were like, don't run on the other side of that. And they're like, you know, trying to run under. And we're like, no, no. It was great. Like I said, we, uh, took, Don's, we took Don's truck. And, uh, you know, so there's other folks from the, from the orphanage. But at one point I look over and all the kids were, to get a better view, they had climbed up and were sitting on, not in the bed of Don's truck, but they were sitting on top of the truck. And they're, you know, right, grinding their little booties with all, and grinding the dust into the truck. And we, we see that. And I look around, I kind of like cringed for a second. I said something to Don about it later. And he just laughed. He goes, ah, it's the Lord's truck, you know. If he wants to use it to give those kids a better view of the races, then great. And he just laughed off and that was all he said. And I thought, you know, that's the right attitude to have. That's an attitude that says, you know what, this isn't my stuff. This is the Lord's. And it's for his kingdom. And it's for his purpose. And if that means that these kids grow closer to the Lord and that we build a better relationship with them and that they're more open to the gospel because they're, they're a little bit happier, then that's fine. And if that means my truck gets a little scuffed up, oh well. But see, in our culture, we don't have that. Picking up our cross means that we lay down our right to ourselves. We release our right to put ourselves first. Number three, embracing pain and suffering. Picking up your cross means that you embrace pain and suffering. And I'm not saying that we somehow, in some weird way, kind of love pain and suffering. We somehow love it when things are difficult for us or we're going through a hard time. That's, that's not right. That's not what Jesus um, says when he says to pick up our cross. We don't love pain and suffering, neither does God. Pain and suffering is a result of sin, but God uses pain and suffering to draw us to himself. He uses these difficulties to flush out pride to make us more humble, to cause us to lean on him and to trust him more and to make us more like ourselves, or to make, it, to make us more like himself, to mold us and transform us into his image. Two texts come to mind when I think of this. One is Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. And this thorn, he reveals, he doesn't go into the details of what it is, but he calls it a thorn of the flesh. It is, it is a, literally a, a physical ailment. It is something that is causing him great problems, many, a lot of problems and pain and suffering. It's not like, like oh man, my, you know, when it gets a little cold, my elbow kind of hurts a little. It wasn't something like that. It was, a, it was a real legitimate problem that he had. And it says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am, con 
For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many of us in our culture, in our society do that? We do everything we can to eliminate pain in our life. For me, the first time I feel a headache coming on, I'm like, where's the Tylenol? I'm, I hate headaches. Things like that. We, we don't want that at all. Uh, we, everything we work towards is to make life easier and to make suffering uh, less and cease. But Paul says, I embrace it. I accept it, and I accept what God is doing in it. The next one is the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, 54. It says, Now, when they heard these things, talking about Stephen and his preaching to the Jews, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Well, God does not make this pain and this suffering happen. He didn't, he didn't orchestrate and cause this stoning of Stephen, but he allowed it to happen. And through it, he used it to spread the gospel. Literally, because of this, persecution arose and the believers scattered and the gospel went with them. As Christians, we have to have this mindset where we understand that pain and suffering exists in our world because of sin. But we also have to have this mindset to where we know that God is somehow using it for his glory. And we have to stop in the midst of it and say, Lord, how are you going to use this? for your kingdom? How are you going to use this in my life to grow me closer to you? How are you going to use this to make your name great, to advance your kingdom? Too often, I think we do everything we can to eliminate sin in our, or to eliminate, we shouldn't eliminate sin in our life, to eliminate suffering in our life. Sometimes I think we will even be immoral. Sometimes I think we are willing to sin and to lie and to cheat and to do wrong just to somehow eliminate suffering. And we can't do that. As Christians, we have to accept and embrace it and say, Lord, teach me through it. In this text, it's not that Stephen loved suffering, but it's not that he hated it. It's just that avoiding it simply wasn't in any way his priority. And if going through pain in some way glorified God and advanced his kingdom, then he would gladly pick up that cross because loving and obeying God was way more important. And that was his focus and priority. One more thing I want to draw your attention to this morning. Um, when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, he says, get behind me, Satan. In, in some ways, it really has a double meaning. In some ways, in some ways, he's saying to Peter, or he's saying, be gone, Satan. Uh, get out of here. You know, get out of here, Satan. <laughs> Makes me laugh because my, my brother has taught my niece, who's two. Uh, you know, there, he's at that, there, she's at that very teachable, hilarious age. Um, he's taught her, he likes to mess with me. He, you know, he teases me a bit. And uh, but he said, what is, he's taught her, what does Uncle Stephen say? And she goes, be gone, Satan. 
super funny. It's really funny when you hear a two-year-old say that. And she goes, but she emphasizes Satan. She goes, be gone, Satan, like that. It's hysterical. <laughs> some, for some reason, because I'm a pastor, apparently that's what I say. I don't know. I've actually never said that, but, <laughs> but it's funny from a two-year-old. So in one sense, Peter is saying, Jesus is saying that to Peter. He says, you know, in a sense, be gone, get out of here. But in the other sense of the word, the, the words that Jesus is using are the exact same words where he says just a, just a sentence later. He says, if anyone would come after me and follow me. It's the exact same words. And in Mark 1, when Jesus says to Peter and Andrew and James and John, when he calls them to be his disciples, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It says they laid down their nets and followed him. It's the exact same words as get behind me. So in other words, again, it's got a double meaning. One, he's saying, get out of here, Satan. But he's saying, in a sense, get back behind me, Peter. Get back to following me, Peter. He's saying, get back in line, Peter. Too often, I think we are like that blind man, and we are like Peter. I'm going to pray in just a second, and pastors and elders, they can come forward in just, in just a moment when I pray. It is, it is possible, it is very possible that we are like Peter and we're like this blind man and we aren't seeing things clearly. We have lost sight of what Jesus' mission really is and what he is calling us to and what he demands of his followers. And we have to get back in line. We have lost sight of what he's really demanding of us. And we've got to get back in line. We've got to get back to actually legitimately, truly being a follower of him because as it is, it may be that you are standing opposed to him. Maybe, maybe you have never given your life over to Christ. Maybe, you know, you've played the game. Maybe you wear the mask really, really well. But you, if you're being honest with yourself, can say you've never truly been a follower of Christ. Uh, if you want to pray, Today's a great day to do that. If you want to pray and give your life over to Jesus and begin to be a true follower of him, maybe you realize, you know what, I got to get back in line. Today's the day to do that. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, um, I think too often in our life we stand opposed to you. Too often uh, we get so preoccupied with our own mission and our own mindset and attitude and what we want. Uh, Lord, help us to get back in line Help us to get back to following you. Um, help us to listen to what you are actually calling us to and, and obey that. Uh, God, give us great opportunities this week to pick up our cross and to follow you. Help us to be obedient when you call us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for saving us and making it even possible to be a follower of you. Uh, grow us this week, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.